spiritual warfare is always a, a, a kind of a, a tenuous topic because there are some people who believe that there is no war because Jesus already won at the cross. Uh, there are others who fight a war stupidly. I don't know another way to say it. They, they think they have authority they don't have, and they go into places they, and say things they shouldn't say with regard to uh, spiritual warfare. But let me tell you that um, the enemy is, this is what Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Paul says there is a battle going on, and, and our, our enemy is not you and I. Our enemy is spiritual. And therefore, we engage. You fight spiritually. It goes on, he says, in 2 Corinthians 10.4. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, not of the flesh, but they're mighty through our God to the tearing down of strongholds. And these strongholds he's talking about. And um, as I've been praying over this, this these past few weeks, just feeling in my heart that the, the, we're coming to a place in the world where the heavenlies are beginning to stir because the return of the king is imminent. And imminence could be 100 years, but I don't think so. And, and in doing that, that means the hordes of hell are stirred as well because they know their demise is on the horizon. And so they are desperately stirring up. Um, you know, it's kind of like we, we have this picture that there, there's a, you know, a, a wasp nest, and we see this one wasp, and we think, if I can just kill that wasp, he's not going to sting me. And so we swing and we kill the wasp, but we hit the next. And the next thing you know, we're not fighting one, but we're fighting a whole swarm of them. And I guess the, the best picture I have of where the church is today and, and what Scripture says, um, you know, we have uh, our government right now says that um, if we give our enemy too much credit, we strengthen them. So the best way to weaken them is not to acknowledge them. So when a terrorist attack occurs, don't call it a terrorist attack because that's going to go, yes, we got, the, we, we got what we wanted. They know we're out there. He said, just, let's just ignore them. You know, and, and find a way to talk them into peace. And that's kind of how the church has become in, with regard to spiritual warfare. We just kind of feel like, many leaders in the church feel like, we can't really talk about the enemy, can't talk about Satan. If we just ignore him and we just focus on our salvation, then we should be good and we should be able to walk in this. But unfortunately, they don't know what the Bible says because that isn't what Scripture teaches. That isn't what Jesus taught. And it definitely isn't what Paul taught. And so I want us to begin to focus. Today I'm, I'm going to talk about our battles not with flesh and blood. And, and I've broken this into two parts. And, and um, to understand the enemy, we really have to understand who we are first. I always use this analogy, and you've heard it before, so just bear with me if I get tired of the soil. Um, but when I was in college, I worked at a grocery store called Alpha Beta, which doesn't exist anymore. And... Um, while I was a checker, we would stock shelves. We'd go to four in the morning, stock shelves to the store open, then we'd uh, do checkout from 10 to 1. And uh, there was a, a, a plethora of counterfeit $20 bills that had been infiltrating the market, and they were getting into the grocery stores everywhere. And so a lot of people were using counterfeit 20, so they had to teach us how to identify a counterfeit $20 bill. So they put us in a class, and what they did was for about four hours, they taught us everything about the real 20. They never showed us a fake. They just, everything on the front of the real 20 and on the back of the real 20, so you could identify. Then, 
um, Alpha Beta had a, a school, a checking school, so we went to the, the, the checking stations and they brought through, you know, pretend customers buying food, and as they came through, they paid with 20s, and it was our job to be able to identify the counterfeit. But because we knew the real, everybody in my class caught the, caught the counterfeit because we knew what the real looked like. So we have to understand that first and foremost, we have to know who Jesus is. We have to know what the Word of God says. We don't want to spend all of our time focusing on the enemy. We want to focus on Jesus. But the reality is this. We're fighting a battle, and we need to know the strategies of our enemy so that when he comes at us, we are fully equipped and ready to stand and resist and destroy the works of darkness. In order to do that, we have to, first of all, accept the fact that the enemy is real. He does exist. He does have an agenda. You know, quite frankly, he hates you. He hates me with a vehement hate. He hates us as much as he hates Jesus because we are Jesus. Jesus living and dwelling in us is the very thing that reminds him every day of his demise and his destiny. And so we have to understand as we come against this enemy that the life that we live right now, life for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, life is a battleground. And in that battleground, I look at it this way. When you, when you come to Christ, you are enlisted into the Lord's army. And uh, we all come in as grunts. You know, we come in as private first class. We have to go through boot camp. We have to be taught, you know, who our enemy is, what their weapons are. And, and then you become part of the infantry. And as the battle goes on, the infantry are always on the front line shooting, and they're fighting the other infantry. But military strategy tells you the best way to defeat the enemy is to go after the head. Because if you destroy the head, there's nobody to lead the rest, and there's chaos, and then you can take care of the chaos. And the way that, the, the, as I was praying the last couple of weeks, is, Lord, I don't want to get, you know, there's a, there's a demon in every bush kind of mentality, but we have to understand who we are. And really, the body of Christ, we're all enlisted in the army, but just as it is with our military, there are special forces. There are people who are special trained who go in, who go after the head when everybody else is on the front line. And these guys, you know, whether you call them Navy SEALs, whether you call them Green Beret, whether you call them Black Ops, these guys have to go through training. And one of the things that... Um, I've heard it twice now. When uh, I, I watched the, uh, the interview of the man who uh, killed Osama bin Laden, you, if you know that story, when the helicopters landed in dark in Pakistan and went into that building, they had no idea. They had night vision on, but they only had intelligence from Pakistanis. So he said, before we landed, when we were given, told what we were going after, what we are going to do, we had to settle one thing in our heart, that in all likelihood we weren't going to come back. So we went in knowing that we had a greater chance of dying than living. And that didn't stop them. And I saw the same thing when I, when I uh, saw the movie 13 Hours talking about Benghazi and the guys who went, the, the, the CIA, uh, the hired guys who were former CIA who went to the compound where the ambassador was. Um, they were not given permission to go, but they knew their brothers were in trouble. And as they stayed there, they said, as, as you listen to them be interviewed after the interview, they said this, we pretty much knew when we left um, we were going to die. But we had our brothers there who are fellow soldiers, and we had to do everything we could to rescue them. And unless we have that mindset, you know, Paul says for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, he says, I count all things as loss for the sake of the cross. 
So one of the things you and I, as followers of Jesus, have to settle in our heart is that we are dead. If we are not dead to this world, if we are not dead to the flesh, if we're living for Christ and Christ alone, then we are truly walking as dead people, and the affairs of this world and the affairs of our life don't matter because we've enlisted an army, and we are, for all intents and purposes, specifically as intercessors. You know, intercessors, they're called the watchmen. When you have the watchmen set on the wall, not the whole army gets on the wall, the watchmen are the ones who look out in the distance to see what's coming to tell the army what to prepare for to tell what battle is coming. And so as intercessors, we have a responsibility as watchmen on the wall that, first of all, we have to be dead to everything. We, we cannot allow the cares of this world, we can't allow desires and longings for things of this world to interfere with the destiny and purpose God has called us to. And so as this house of prayer I have, you know, even two weeks ago, I, somebody told me that, um, you know, if you got a bigger building, you'd have more people. And um, <clears throat> and not that I'm opposed to more people. I mean, I would love to have, you know, a hundred more times of what we have here. But here's the reality. After 30 years of pastoring a mainline denominational church and as a regional superintendent and a district supervisor whose job was to grow the church, to do all of the programs, to go through all the church growth there, I've come to realize that God hasn't called me to be a sergeant in the big army. God has called me to be a leader of the black ops, you know, for spiritual warfare. And so God has called us. It's not about how many of us are. It's about how many of us are willing to die for what we've been called for and to lay down everything for the sake of the day and the hour in which we live. And so that's one of the reasons we stay, we stay small. Because it's a hard message. It's, a, it, you know, it's not a hard life. I'm going to tell you, it is not a hard life. If, if you have the heart of David and love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, just to know. You know, if we have the one thing, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life to behold his beauty. You know, this really is not a hard life. Because we, we get to the point to where we realize, this is going to die anyway. So if it's going to die anyway, why not go out in a blaze of fire? You know, why just sit back in a chair and wait for it to happen? So that's all free. That wasn't in the notes. Um, so we're in a battle. And Paul writes to Timothy, his, his mentoree. You know, he says this, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were called. Now, before you and I got saved, the devil had full impact, full sway on our life. He had things going his way, and he really didn't have to put up a fight with regard to us because we were just swimming in the stream with him. It was, it was no, no problem. But when we became residents of God's kingdom, when we switched sides, so to speak, conflict became a major issue of our life. True followers of Jesus Christ are engaged in warfare daily. And if, if you want to sit there and shake your head and go, I'm not in a battle every day, then, then we need to have a private talk here, you know, because I need to show you where the battlefield is, and, and we need to engage. Because Paul says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle against forces of darkness. In fact, he calls them spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. 
you know, and and so it's a distortion, unfortunately, in the church. And when I say the church, I'm not critical of the bride of Christ. I mean, come on, we're his bride. But there are some in the church who want to pretend that if they just ignored, it would go away. And so the way we do that is they, they preach messages that say, you know, when you get saved, your life will become easy. You have problems now? Just give your heart to Jesus and everything gets easy. Jesus said, if you follow me, you're going to have tribulation. You know, he said, he said to his disciples, he says, blessed are you when men persecute you, revile you and speak all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. He says, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. And he says, look, at, that's exactly the way the persecuted the prophets who came before you. Jesus said, if you're going to go all out for me, just know people are going to talk about you. People can tell lies about you. People are going to look at you and go, oh, he's one of those fanatics. He's one of those Pentecostal guys. You know, everything the church doesn't understand, they blame on Pentecostals. They do. If, if you're doing anything that's out of mainland, oh, you're one of those Pentecostals. Oh, Praise God, I'm one of those Pentecostals. So but what they do is they, they teach and they promote that, you know, God just loves you and wants you to be happy and wants you to have peace. And if you give your heart to Jesus, you know, there's not going to be any conflict. Life is going to be simple. Life is going to be smooth. There'll be no more trouble in your life. The enemy loves that sermon. That's his favorite sermon. He loves that message. If he can get believers to believe that he doesn't exist or that once they get saved, he's not going to bother them anymore, he doesn't have to do much because he's already won the battle. There's others that teach that, you know, if, if you're fighting and struggling, that maybe you never really accepted Jesus. You know, maybe you never really got saved. And so, you know, they, uh, and yet Ephesians 6 says just the opposite. If you're struggling, it's because you're following Jesus. If you're fighting principalities of darkness, it's because you've embraced the light and the darkness hates the light. You know, the simple analogy is, again, go into a room that is completely dark, completely black, and just sit there for five minutes and turn on the light. What happens to your eyes? You know what I like? Because then you just, that's how the enemy feels when Jesus walks into his presence. And every one of us who are carriers of the name of Christ, we walk into the presence of darkness, they have to do this because their light is dark. So they don't want you to believe there's power in the light because they don't want you to believe that darkness even exists. Others teach that if you've been trying to fight the battle, stop doing it because Jesus already won it. And Jesus did win the battle over death, hell, and the grave. But you and I have to know that there is no teaching found anywhere in Scripture that says everything's going to be okay, all right, forevermore. There's nothing in the Bible that teaches that. In fact, the Bible teaches just the opposite, exactly the opposite. So we have to fight we have to keep on fighting, and to fight, we have to recognize our enemy. Now, the Bible is very clear. We have three enemies. The Bible says the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, the devil uses the world and the flesh. So I don't want to spend a lot of time. I didn't want to talk about what the world does, talk about what the flesh does, and then talk about what the devil does and say, let's go home. So I thought I'd do the devil first so I can end on a high note. And just know I'm just going to give you a brief overview. Because I want us to look at, in the next couple of weeks, not only how the enemy works, but, but how Jesus works and how angels work. 
You know, angels are warriors. They, they are battling for us. There is wars going on in the heavenlies, and we need to recognize that and see it. So we face all three enemies. So, so we have this supernatural enemy. And, and when I say supernatural, I'm, all I'm saying is he's in the invisible realm. He's not more super than Jesus, and he's definitely not natural. But he, he dwells in this invisible realm. And so every believing Christian is subject to the influence of the world. It is around us every day. Every believer is subjected to persuasions of the flesh. We're battling. You know, and beyond both of these powers, there is Satan. There is the devil seeking to hold us all in a captivity and understand how he does that. When you give your heart to Jesus, Scripture is really clear about what he does. He's a commander of a large host of fallen angels that we call demons. And these fallen angels, their one job is this. They are completely opposed to anything that's of God. They're completely opposed to anything that exalts the name of Jesus. They hate worship. They hate evangelism. They hate prayer. They hate compassion for the poor. They hate anything that looks like Jesus, and they will do all they can to oppose it. You know, one of the things that is amazing to me, one of the things the church says is we don't want to do too much to help the poor and the homeless because it's going to attract more poor and homeless. How stupid is that? Bring all the poor and homeless. You know, life is not supposed to be easy. It wasn't supposed to be. We all, you know, we deal with people that smell good and look nice and, and you know, have a job and, and, and a spouse and three kids and live in a nice house with a white picket fence. That's not the life we've been called to. So these, these forces of darkness are dedicated to the task of defeating those who've accepted Christ. That's their job. That's what they do. We are their target. There is this big target on our chest or on our back, and they're always trying to shoot at it. That's why, and we'll get into this in a few weeks, that's why when, when Paul talks about this armament as he's looking at these Roman soldiers who are standing next to him while he's in prison, and he says, Look at they have armor, we have armor. And what is the shield of faith for? To put out the fiery darts of the wicked one. The enemy is shooting darts. And the reason he shoots darts is because darts are fast, they're hard to see, and, and they, they're, they're little. They can just sneak in. But a shield of faith quenches these fiery darts. But we'll, that's, I'm getting ahead of myself. So here's what the Bible says about the devil. First of all, the Bible says the devil's real, and they said this, this says this about him. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He's an accuser. He's an tempter, and he's an evil one. Now, the Bible says all of that about the devil. It also says this is how he operates. He seduces. He opposes. He deceives. He sows tares. He hinders. He tempts, and he blasphemes. That is taking place in this world every day in our lives as we follow Christ. Satan's personal. You know, he's not make-believe. He's smart. Um, and he's destructive. But you know what? Even though he's smart, he's not wise. And, and God is so much smarter and so much wiser. And God tells us that our faith grows, and if we lack wisdom, to ask, and he'll give it liberally. And that wisdom gives us the strategies of how to defeat the smart person. I'll take a wise person over a smart person any day because a wise person calls upon that which is good and not their own. A wise person uses their mind, not their heart. 
So he has his own. And listen to some of the things that Scripture says Satan has, just so we understand. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus is dictating this letter to John to the seven churches, you know, and he says this, I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty. Then he says, but you are rich. Don't you love that? I know your poverty, but you are rich. But it always brings me back to Corinthians when Paul is writing them about the Macedonians, you know, and how the Macedonians have come to help. And he has this classic quote. He says, out of the depths of their poverty, they gave their gold. What a powerful statement. These people, the Macedonians were the poor of the poor. And yet in their, in their poorness, they took an offering to help the church at Antioch. So out of the depth of their poverty, they gave their gold. And, and so the enemy, he, he, he wants to know, he doesn't want us to, to know that this upside-down, inside-out, backwards kingdom that we live in is really a good thing. So even though we may have tribulation and be on poverty, we may we may understand we're really rich. And then he says this, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So those who are teaching a false doctrine, he has his own synagogue, and that synagogue is where there's false teaching. He has his own ministers. This is what Paul says, right, in the church of Corinth. And no wonder. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So Paul's talking about a demonic righteousness that appears to be of God, but the works of that righteousness are ungodly, and they will be judged for their unrighteousness. He talks about they have their own doctrine. When he writes to Timothy, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, which we're in, some will depart from faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons. I'm not making this up. It's, it's what the Word of God says. Even says that Satan has his own communion. When he's teaching the church at Corinth how to partake of communion because they had made it something it wasn't supposed to be. He says, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. He said, you cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. So for everything that God has given the church to walk in authority, the enemy has a counterfeit. It's back to that counterfeit $20 bill. If we don't know what the real thing looks like, we're going to be deceived when the false things come. That's why it is so, so so imperative that you know what the Word of God says. If you don't know what the Bible says, you, you are, you've set yourself up for defeat. Jesus knew that when he was in the wilderness for 40 days and he came out and Satan encountered him face to face, person to person. Jesus simply could explain. That was his weapon. And it says after the third time after he quoted scripture, he said that Satan had to leave and the angels came and ministered to him. Satan uses the allurements of the world and the appeal of the flesh. We're going to talk about the world and the flesh here in a moment. And his goal is to try and get us to do what God forbids. One of his best techniques is discouragement. If he can get us discouraged for one moment, if you're trusting and believing God for something, and it doesn't work out the way you thought it was going to work out, doesn't look the way you think it was going to look, doesn't happen when you think it was going to happen, and you allow yourself to get discouraged, that is his greatest weapon among people of faith, discouragement. 
Because here's what he does. He wants us to become so downhearted that we lose confidence and therefore we lose faith. He wants us to work hard to, he works hard to bring depression and despondency into our lives so that we'll die. He'll do his best to implant thoughts to convince you that the whole reason none of that happened is because you're a failure. Because there's something about you that isn't bad enough. And yet that is exactly the opposite of what Jesus said. Remember when the disciples came to him and said, you know, we have a problem. We've been casting out demons. You told us to go do it. We found it in the leaves. You know? And, and Jesus' first response is this. Have faith in God. That's the first thing he says to him. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be removed and cast in the sea and does not doubt in his heart, he will have whatever he wants. You see, it's all about us not doubting in our heart. I'm talking about our mind, our heart here. Not doubting in our heart, having faith in God to believe what God says he's going to do. It tells us in Hebrews and it tells us in the book of Numbers, the same thing. That God is not a man that he should lie. Nor the son of man that he should repent. In other words, if you know the word of God, the one thing that we need to hold on to is God has never, ever, ever, he cannot change his character, his nature. It's impossible for God to lie. If God has given you a promise, if God by the Holy Spirit has spoken to you, whether by prophetic word or whether by word in a dream or whatever, and God has spoken to you and you haven't seen it come to pass yet, do not doubt, do not give up. The enemy wants you to be disillusioned because the moment you're disillusioned is the moment you stop holding on to that one thing that God has promised in your life that if you walk out and see it fulfilled, it's going to blow up everything, every scheme the enemy's had in his mind to cause to happen for you. Hold fast to your promises. If you have a prophetic word, I mean, my wife and I have a prophetic word, and, and you know, when a guy comes from South Africa not knowing who he's looking for on a 40-day fast and winds up in your living room and says, God has sent me to you, and this is what God says to you, and he sits there, and we have 11 pages, single-spaced, of the word of the Lord to us. And here it is, 25 years later, and it's not all happened yet. We have a choice. We can either say, David Minicky wasted his money, his time, and didn't hear from God. Or we can say, it's not here yet, but it's about to happen. And that's how we walk, and that's what we believe, and that's what we trust. And so we don't get delusioned, we don't doubt, we don't get discouraged. We instead hold on to the promise of what God says. So let's look real closely here. We have two enemies that the enemy uses to cause us to lose sight of who we are. The first one is an outer enemy or what we call the world. And again, it's, it's Scripture that tells us about how to deal with the world. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Is that pretty clear? I mean, do I need to explain? Then he says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I don't think any more clear than that. That's, it's pretty straightforward. James, the brother of Jesus, who, by the way, didn't believe his brother was the Son of God until after he rose from the dead whole time Jesus walked on earth, you know, James was not a follower of his brother. I mean, I would think my brother was crazy, too, if he said he was Messiah. But, you know, but this is what he writes down. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
who is God's enemy? Satan. So, and he's our enemy too. So what it's saying here, if we're a friend of the world, we're a friend of Satan. We're a friend of the enemy of God. And so we have to look at what is the world system, what is, what is the world doing that wants to entice us in to believe and embrace and accept. And the church, unfortunately, bought into a lie about 20 years ago. It was the lie of relevance. And the church believed that if we looked like the world, we would entice the world to come in, and then we could lead them to Christ. And so more and more, I read an article in, in Charisma Magazine about a month ago about how worship has left the church for performance. And how now the church, every time you go on Sunday morning, he said, and one of the ways you know this has happened is this, nobody's singing. Everybody's watching. The smoke fills the stage. The lights start to glow around. And it is just, I mean, it's a concert every week. And that's not to say that the hearts of those singing aren't loving God and worshiping God. What I'm saying is in our quest to win the lost, we've crossed the line. We're no longer the enemy of the world because we look like the world. So we want people, if they're going to go to a U2 concert, or if they're going to go to a worship in our church, we want them to feel like they're in the same setting. Ours is free, theirs costs, so come to the free concert. But what, what grabbed me in that article is said, nobody's singing in church anymore. You know, when I grew up, I mean, I was the kid who finally got our pastor to let me play guitar in church. Up until then, it was the organist and the piano. And we sang hymns, and I love hymns. You know, and usually, you know, you had a bulletin that told you which hymn, which page number, and then you would, you'd have the song leader who'd stand up in the suit in the pulpit and wave their hand as everybody sang, you know, and, you know, and they would give you which verse you're going to sing. They would go up. That was, they had hand signs even back then for worship. You know, one, three. And then you always knew the song was over with the chorus or with, because you would end with amen. But you know what? Here's the thing about that. Everybody sang. Everybody looked at the words. It wasn't about the performance. It was about who you're singing to. Um, and, and we don't have that problem here. Sometimes I feel like I'm not going to be able to teach because we like to sing so much, you know, which is okay, which is good. So the world we're not to love is this man-centered way of life. This life ignores God, operates by selfish principles, lives by ungodly standards. The philosophy of the world says that the only important thing is this life. And, and frankly, it's easy. It's easy to get misdirected, even in the followers of Jesus, to embrace something of this life and, and feel like it's more important that that thing, that choice is more important than surrendering everything for Christ. The principles of the world are force, greed, selfishness, ambition, and pleasure. And John breaks the world down into three components. He says this, John, 1 John 2, 16 and 17, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And then he says this, the world is passing away, and the lust of it. 
but who does the will of God in us? So John says, this is, this is what consists of the world. This is the worldview that the enemy is going to use to entice you to take your eyes off of Jesus. It is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So what's the lust of the flesh? It's sensualism. It is, gosh, what word, what adjective do I want? It is the flood that is swallowing up the world right now, sensualism. It is, it's, it's justifying, I mean, the body has legitimate needs. Don't, don't get me wrong. We do need to eat, okay? If you fast too long, it's like the guy who says, I had this dog and I taught it not to eat and then it died. Um, but it's kind of like, you know, that, that's not the type of fasting God's talking about here. You know, this fasted lifestyle. So there are legitimate bodily needs. But when we glut our senses, it becomes animal-like self-indulgence. Um, you know, we allow the appetite of food to become excessive. We, we are the primary culture in the world, the Western culture. We eat for pleasure. 95% of the world eats to live. We live to eat. And, and, and I'm guilty of that. I mean, last night we were talking, so what are we going to do for lunch tonight? You know, it wasn't even tomorrow yet. Where do we want to go? I'm tired of tacos. I'm tired of hamburgers. I'm tired of pizza. You know, and the rest of the world is, I get rice again today? I get water today? You see, and so we all are, even in our righteousness, we all are enticed into the ways of the world. You know, this... This, we permit the, ex, the, the exercise of sexual relationships with becoming mystical. You know, shocker to the church, God created sex. Hello. He created it for a number of reasons, but every reason is in one context. Marriage. Between a man and a woman. Took him out of sex. Any other expression of sexuality outside of that definition of God is illicit, and God's very clear on how he sees it. You know, the, the church is so busy pointing his fingers at, you know, no gay marriage, you know, no transsexual this. Do we know that the same judgment for homosexuals and transsexuals is the same judgment for fornicators and adulterers? Same judgment. But the church doesn't talk about that too much because the church has allowed the sensuality of a world system that has just overwhelmed them to somehow justify it as being okay. And, and I mean, it, it permeates our culture. My wife and I say often, I'm glad. I mean, I love this generation. I love your fire, your passion, your zeal. But, man, it's so hard to be pure in this generation, a lot harder than it was in my generation. I mean, we've always had, we're humans. We always have desires God's put within us. But, you know, when I grew up, it was, are you going to kiss on the first date? You know, and most of the time it was no. Now it's not even have you slept together on the first date. Now they have sex buddies. And they just have sex with whomever just because it's the thing to do. It, and, and unfortunately, it is invaded into the church. There's not a, a week that doesn't go by that we don't hear about moral failure. This last week, a big article in Charisma Magazine was about the worship leader for Joel Olstein's church. He's won all these Dove Awards, all these Grammy Awards. 
think his wife just got divorced because of his unfaithfulness. Which, by the way, and this is just me speaking, he's still the worship pastor at that church. So I'm just going to throw it out there and just uh, deal with that however you want. But let's, that, that's what's happened to the church. That's what's happened. So it's the lust of the flesh. Then there's the lust of the eyes, materialism. You know, we think of lust of eyes, we think of looking at something that causes us to lust sexually. Sexual lust is one of many, many, many lusts the eyes entice us into. It's just materialism, coveting, itching, wanting to own what we see. It's the desire that arises and we see things that we really don't need, but we want. I read this line I've used many times. This lust of the eyes is the desire to get things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. Isn't that true? The pride of life, which is egotism. The desire to enhance our own prestige and to push ourselves up. To inflate our own reputation. And it's the attempt to get the spotlight shining on ourselves and pretending to be somebody who we really aren't. And, and quite frankly, the scripture talks a lot about this in the body of Christ. That there are pretenders in the body of Christ who put on airs of self-righteousness in order to try to appear righteous to everybody else. Forgetting the fact that man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And so the pretension of trying to fool everybody else never fools God. And it certainly doesn't fool the devil. So it's by the way we talk, by the way we dress, by the way we spend our money. Uh, the world exerts all of these, the, the, these pressures on us. It would like to dominate our personalities and mold our hearts. So how do we deal with the outer enemy of the world? I mean, we live in it. You get up in the morning, you take a breath, it's there. It's the world. This is what Jesus said. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So Jesus is the way we overcome the world. Jesus is the way. We pursue the peace of Jesus, the lust of the world, the desires of the world go away. Because his peace becomes more, more of a calming to our heart than the pursuing of anything we'd want to own. First John, John says this, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. He who overcomes the world, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So we, we have to continuously refuse to be guided by the world's standard of right and wrong, which doesn't exist anymore. Now wrong is right and right is wrong. And, and Jesus said it would be that way. In the end, it, it would look like that. That everything that stands for right is wrong, everything that stands for wrong is right. And and the, the the minority rules the majority. Most people swim with the tide. We can't find our worth from the value system of the world. The world's preoccupied with pleasure, with wealth, with power, and they just jump in the stream, they just go along with the flow. So we have to avoid close, influential relationships with worldly people. Now let me clarify that. We are to be light in darkness. We are to take the gospel 
to people who don't know Christ, and we should befriend people who don't know Christ, but we should befriend them as long as we are as Jesus was. You know, Jesus was ridiculed for hanging out with what they called wine bibbers, drunkards, and tax gatherers. Those were considered to be the, the trash of society. And Jesus was ridiculed for hanging out with them, and many Christians used that argument. Well, Jesus hung out with people who, you know, got drunk and, and people who, you know, used money incorrectly. But here's the difference. When Jesus went into the bar, when he came out, everybody in the bar was saved. He didn't come out drunk. They came out drunk and holy. So we have to understand that we, we have to have friends that don't know Jesus, but they cannot be so close and so personal to us that their life has a greater influence on our life than our life has on theirs. And it's very easy to do. For that brief season of a few years when I was um, working on a movie project, um, and so I was gone more than I was here for about three years, it was so hard not to get in Christ. Not, not to entice to a value system, not to get in Christ to, you know what? I can still serve Jesus and do this. I mean, we can make, we can make films and, and get people saved, but I just keep hanging with these people. You know, that's, that's, that was not what I was called to. You know, and, and thank God I got fired from that. <coughs> Sue was there. So, you know, acquaintance is one thing. Devoted friendship is quite another. You, you know, we, we don't become the world to win the world. We become Jesus to overcome the world. Let me say that again. We don't become the world to win the world. We become Jesus to overcome the world. We've got to be careful by the kinds of things we choose. Especially parents as you raise teenagers and, and young people, they, they will like to use Scripture to justify hanging out with the wrong kids. And there comes a time you have to say, no, I'm the parent. You're not going to hang around with the wrong kids because they're going to have a better influence on you than you do on them. If you want to hang with them, bring them to church. Then see if they want to hang with you. We cannot be ashamed to let others know where we stand. We, we don't trump with self-righteousness, but we stand firmly for what is right. It means we're ready to let the world see we're guided by higher principles. It means we love like Jesus loved. And then we have our inner enemy, the flesh. <clears throat> Paul says this right in the church at Galatia. He says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So let's go kindergarten 101. If you're fulfilling the lust of the flesh, you are not what? What? Pretty much a no-brainer. If you're fulfilling the lust of the flesh, if you're struggling the flesh and you're giving in, you know right then it's because you're not walking in the Spirit. This fallen, self-centered human nature whose natural tendency is to sin. You know, because of Adam and Eve, bless their hearts. And quite frankly, if it wasn't Adam and Eve, it would have been Rick and Jamie. You know? <laughs> Somebody was bound to be enticed, to be deceived. The Bible tells us, this is what the prophet Jeremiah says to Israel, but it still stands true for us. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. Our hearts are evil by nature. We're born into sin. But the blood of the Lamb shed for our sins, buried, risen from the dead, washes away sin, sets us free from that bondage, and gives us what we need to walk in freedom. But it's not a once and for all. It's, it's not like, you know, when you're 13, you don't take a shower once and don't say I'm sorry. Because you're going to stink in about two days. you got to shower again. It's the same thing. You don't get washed in the blood of Jesus once and go, oh, I'm clean forever. We're in the world. We're in the flesh. We're constantly picking up the dirt. And we've got to get under the shower of the blood of Jesus and let the Holy Ghost come and just wash all the crud off. And stand clean and pure before the Lord. You know, Scripture is very clear that none is righteous, no, not one. But then John says this: If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The confession of sin brings us under the shower of the blood of Jesus Christ, and the blood of Jesus washes away unrighteousness, which means we then stand in righteousness. And that righteousness is what gives us the ability to stand before our daddy and say, Abba, to get him to his lap by the spirit of adoption and to live and operate as his kids. You know, so we, we as Christians have two natures. We have the old sinful nature, okay? When you get saved, you're still a human being that's housing the spirit. And what the old nature is our sinful desires, and we have this new life that is the nature controlled by the Holy Spirit, and when the sinless new nature is placed alongside the depraved old nature, there's always a conflict in our mind. In fact, this is what Paul says. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. The spirit and the flesh are not meant to get along. So that you do not do the things you wish. The only way we don't do the things we wish is to walk in the Spirit, to, to embrace the Spirit. So even our most spiritual actions are sometimes tainted by selfishness and pride. In the name of Christianity, I've seen a lot of flesh float up. I've heard a lot of prayers that were prayed for me to hear and not prayed for God to move. Prayers that were prayed for the audience to go, oh, wow, as the words just fall to the ground. I've seen people talk about how much money they give so they can be applauded for their giving. And I've known people who says, look it, I give the most money in this church, so I should have the most say. Some people have evangelistic zeal and love to just boast about how many people they witness to, but they really don't have love for the lost. They just like to witness. I remember we used to, back in the old days, we used to have testimony services. People would go and go, I'm interested back in my day. We had this guy who'd get up every week and say, this week I witnessed to 27 people. That was a testimony. It wasn't 
this week I'll walk alongside a poor man and I'll share Jesus with him and I gave him my coat and by the end of the week, you know, he was my friend and uh, he's close to becoming a follower of Christ. There was no loving, there was boasting like how many times they've gone and they fired their shotgun hoping they would knock somebody down. So just because we do things in the name of Jesus doesn't mean we're agnostic. Even doing things in the name of Jesus that are birthed by our own mind, by our own flesh, are simply false. In fact, it's it's Jesus. You know, he says, and, and there will be those who stand before him and go, wait, wait, what do you mean? Didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? And Jesus goes, who are you? I don't even know you. Depart from me. So it doesn't matter what we do. What matters is who we are and who we know. So the flesh nature drags us down to animal-like behaviors. It's, it's interesting what culture does. But, you know, we all have animal instincts. I mean, animals in the wild don't do anything we don't do, except, you know, we don't kill each other to eat each other, at least physically. We like to eat with words sometimes, but, um, you know, not physically. And our English language has kind of picked up on these ideas. You know, you have a, you have a woman who goes around quietly maligning other people, and we call her, she's ugly. You have a grouchy man, you call him an old dog. You have a stubborn person, an old man. You have a cowardly person, we call him a chicken. And we, we take animal behaviors and we, we attach them to humanity. So no matter how spiritual we might be, the flesh can always crop up and we're going to find ourselves on at days being a cat, a bear, an old mule, or a chicken at any moment. Because the new creature is always struggling in this situation. It's, it's a battle that doesn't go away. But it's not a battle we have to lose. It's a battle we can win every day. The new man, the new nature, knows that we should study God's word. The old man tries to keep us too busy. I'll say that again. The new man knows that he should study God's word because that's our weapon. The old man says, I'll get to it. I'm just kind of busy right now. I kind of slide it in sometimes. The new man knows he should be a peacemaker. The old man loves gossip and controversy. Everybody loves a juicy story. The new man knows he should tithe and give. The old man says, I can't afford because it interferes with my financial plan. I've got to think about my retirement. The new man knows that he should be patient with people when you witness to them. The old nature doesn't care. Just, I got a witness. I'm just going to shoot it and see what happens. So how do we deal with the inner enemy? Again, Paul says to the Romans, for I delight in the law of God according to the inner man. That comes back to the word of God again. comes back to the law of God. The apostle Paul saw himself, he's indwelt by two laws, the law of God and the one that delights in bringing spiritual defeat to the lust of the flesh. Bring him into spiritual defeat by the lust of the flesh. So Paul says, I delight in the word of God. And he said that after his conversion. He didn't say that before his conversion. But none of us needs to be a constant victim of the power and indwelling sin because this is what the Bible says. It says we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So we've got to put on Jesus every day. If you don't want to give in to the lust of the world and the lust of the flesh that the enemy is going to try and entice you with, you've got to put on Jesus. I mean, I really wonder how many of us get up in the morning and say, okay, Jesus, Come on, let me put you on. I'll wear you for a little bit. But we're supposed to put on Jesus every day. 
Peter says, as obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. We have to learn to say no to the desires of our fallen nature. Peter again says, abstain from the lusts of the flesh which war against the soul. Paul says we have to continually reckon ourselves dead to sin. He says, likewise also reckon yourself dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And again, back to the verse I started with. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. To walk in the Spirit means that we must deliberately allow the Holy Spirit to utilize us. We have to carefully comply with his will as he reveals it to us. This is all foundational to where we're going. Um, As we talk about next week, we're going to talk about um, spiritual. We'll talk about the enemy and we'll talk about angels. And we may get into spiritual weapons, which are different, by the way, than the armor of God. And the only weapon we have, or the great weapon we have, is the word of God. Okay, and that's the sword of the spirit. But we also have weapons of... You know, prayer, intercession, worship, fasting, different weapons God's entrusted us also that the enemy hates. These are, these are what I call the weapons for special gifts. <clears throat> because you know that Navy SEALs get to use toys nobody else uses. And they go by the name of the line. They have guns nobody has. They have night vision things nobody has. They have training nobody has. That's what intercessors are called to. So let's. Let's, here's the conclusion. Remember, there's good news. We've been given every weapon we need to walk in a complete victory because Jesus overcame the world, the flesh, and the devil. So next week in part two, we'll begin to look closely at our weapons and following with our armor and uh, maybe take us two or three or four weeks. We'll see how that plays out. But we've got time. So let's pray. Father, I thank you. You tell us to be of good cheer because Jesus overcame the world. So, Father, I pray that we'll be a people that walk in cheer. God, that we'll recognize that the enemy is like a lion who's walking around looking for somebody to eat up. And lions are lazy. They never go after the fast ones. They never go after the strong ones. They go after the slow, lazy, weak ones because they're easy prey. God, I'm asking that we will run with strength. God, we will mount up with wings as eagles. God, that we will not be easy prey to the enemy because we're strong, because we're equipped, and because we walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. So, Holy Spirit, I'm asking this week as we move into this fast, as we begin to pray for this revival that has been established from the foundations of the earth. God, that we realize first and foremost, revival has to begin with us. So we're asking the Holy Spirit that you would bring to mind those areas in our flesh, those areas in the world that entice us, that cause us to stumble, that we need to bring under authority of the blood of Jesus. God, that we remind it every day to put on Christ, to, to just as we get up in the morning to turn on a nice hot shower to get clean for the day, that we'll get up in the morning and put on the shower of the blood of Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to wash everything away that's not of you. That we'll be hearing the Holy Spirit, that we'll be able to say, Holy Spirit, is this you? Are you asking me to do this? And to know that he'll answer and say yes or no. But that we'll put on Jesus every day and that we'll walk in victory. So we thank you, Jesus, that we could be of good cheer. 
because you have overcome the world. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So set your seal on that heart of faith with love that's stronger than the grave and a fire that many waters cannot quench. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.